what matters most in learning. The challenge, the thrill, the benefits, interacting with other people, or something else entirely. What is the connection between leading and learning? Does change drive learning, or does learning drive change? What's more important, teaching or learning? Is everyone a leader, a learner, a teacher? Want answers? Listen in as we address these intriguing issues through commentary and with guests who share their thinking and tell us their stories. Lead. Learn. Change. Very privileged and honored to be an educator because I was indeed part of the future of this great democracy and experiment called the United States of America. Yes, the teaching job was under court order and the second assignment as principal was actually under Supreme Court order. Things were then set on fire. So the haze as the sun was setting was orange. I shall never forget the sky being orange. My first filter is something very different and that is, what are you here to, to do? A leader will not make a perfect call every time. If everybody's going along with you, watch out, something may not be right here. Popularity does not equal leadership. It is a shame for you to have to work out your inadequacies on a stage of social media. You need to be in a place where you can divest of self and invest in the people you serve. I want what I have experienced to matter for someone else. Oh my goodness, there's so much to learn and so much to teach. Today's guest on Lead, Learn, Change is Dr. Felicia Mayfield. Felicia, thank you so much for taking your time to speak with me today. Thank you for the invitation. Well, as always, it's great to talk with you. As my wife said to me when she learned I was interviewing you, she said, you have always liked her, haven't you? And of course, I said yes, because you were so gracious and welcoming the first time that we met, and nothing has changed since. And you and I first met at a page sponsored future Georgia educators event at Clark Atlanta University. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with Clark Atlanta, we should point out that Clark Atlanta is one of only 101 historically black colleges and universities in the United States. And it shares its campus with Spelman College and Morehouse College on what is called Atlanta University Center. And that's just minutes from the heart of downtown Atlanta, Georgia. It was on this campus at Morehouse that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. attended college. And on the day I met you, I had the opportunity to walk around campus a bit and view some amazing artifacts in the Clark Atlanta University Library. I saw handwritten notes with marginal comments from Dr. King's speeches. I saw invitations to him to visit the school and photographs and other really historic items. So is there anything else you would like to tell us about Clark Atlanta and its rich history or its current emphasis and your work there? Well, thank you for the question and thank you for this opportunity to share. Yes, indeed, there is a very rich history in both of the schools. The origin of Clark Atlanta University dates back to 
1865 and 1869 because there are two institutions involved, Atlanta University and Clark College. Atlanta University touts uh, in its history as being the first graduate school in Atlanta. So yes, it's a very rich history. It's origins were to accommodate those who were not accepted into mainstream state schools at the time. And you told me when we met a couple of years ago that Clark Atlanta nurtures learners, especially first generation college attendees. And that one of the phrases that stuck with me was that Clark Atlanta is a keeper of the dream. And I think you referenced or described keeper of the dream as the dream of social mobility through education. So is there anything you'd like to say about the nurturing of learners and the keeper of the dream? Well, the first thing that people, the first impression people get when they come on campus is a family atmosphere. And when we're talking about higher education and we're talking about advancing lives and indeed advancing families, and future generations, then it takes on a whole new meaning. And then if you put that family concept inside of a tradition with the United Methodist Church, then you see that you have a larger, a more global vision and perspective that actually incorporates the faith-based community as well. So yes, Clark Atlanta University as it is now is a United Methodist affiliated institution. You are Dr. Mayfield, so do you want to give a quick shout out to the places where you've earned your degrees? Well, actually, yes. The first three degrees are from Georgia State University. I am a proud alum of Georgia State University. In fact, I am the immediate past president of the alumni, we call them chairs, uh, chairman of the board, at Georgia State University. I am currently a trustee at Georgia State University, so I have a very proud connection with that institution. I am a proud Panther, so they're both, both of them are Panthers, so I'm a triple Panther at Georgia State and a Panther at Clark Atlanta University. Clark Atlanta University had a partnership with DeKalb Schools years ago in the 90s, and isn't that interesting to say years ago in the 90s, there was a cohort of 17 of us selected from DeKalb schools. We were to be the future leaders, and a partnership was designed between Clark Atlanta and DeKalb schools. The superintendent was very interested in having future leaders prepared and with that, we were able to participate in a doctoral program that was custom designed to meet the needs of DeKalb schools at the time. We are going to cycle back to that notion of leadership because you said some things to me a few years back about that that you seem to really want to emphasize as far as the importance of it. You have had some amazing experiences that have shaped who you are and your, and your beliefs and how you interact with everybody and how you approach teaching and learning. So uh, let's go back, Felicia, you said the 1990s, but I'm going to go back a little further to the 70s and talk about your first job as a teacher at Warren Elementary in Chambly and that job's connection 
to a court order, which grew out of originally Pitts versus Cherry, a case that was filed in 1969, but it was litigated for like 10 years. And then that original case morphed into two others, Freeman versus Pitts and then Freeman versus Mills. And that actually wasn't dismissed until 1997, which is almost 30 years after the original suit was filed, which just shows you how involved those court cases were. You have a connection as a new teacher with all of this in a very interesting way. Please share your connection, that first teaching job, the court case, and how all that intertwines. Yes. I still think of Warren with fond memories. When I, when I pass it on Shambly Tucker, it is now a center for vocational training for special needs students. But at that time, and I'm going to have to put a plug in for myself, at that time, it was the 75-76 school year, and I'm celebrating 45 years. This school year is my 45th year in education, so I, I still, it still puts a smile on my face. But in all seriousness, my assignment there was under a court order at the time, and it had to do with people of color being hired. And uh, yes, I was under a court order to come into the faculty, but I was embraced and I embraced my community. I will always look back on it as a fond time. Mr. James Cottle, he was just a jewel. He was the principal and I just still have very fond memories of all of that. Even with the backdrop of there being something very serious going on, I, I felt very comfortable. I remember having close to a dozen languages being spoken in my school, and I considered it quite an honor to be in that setting and to engage with the students and to have the students engage with me. So I considered it a rich opportunity from that, I will say that I have a sort of interesting school career following that. I have spent seven years as a teacher, seven years as an assistant principal, seven years as a principal, seven years as a coordinator, and seven as a cabinet level administrator working directly with the superintendent. All of them were very rich experiences. But yes, the teaching job was one that was under court order. And the second assignment as principal was actually under Supreme Court order, the 1994 ruling that there were too many principals of color in schools of color. And therefore, they were perpetuating the notion of segregation. So I did move to another school in my principalship. So yes, it's been rich, it's been wonderful. And uh, David, you know, because of the way I look at things, it was also ordained in, in a very special way. None of this was by happenstance. It was for the people to enrich my lives, the boys and girls to pour into me, and for me to pour into the boys and girls. You're touching on the things I want to ask you about. And I do want to cycle back to that part also, where we talk about your view of, or almost a definition of segregation or prejudice, because yours is completely different. It's not along the lines that people think it might be. So I want to cycle back to that. So you've reflected on those assignments and those initial moves to those places, even though they are a result of a court order. 
as very positive experiences. In the time since that first job at Warren Elementary, what have you discovered matters most in teaching and learning? Because it seems like you've just leapfrogged the court order component of these sorts of things, these mandates by external forces, and just said, I'm here to teach or I'm here to lead. That's what I hear. So how did you handle any difficulties that arose and what have you learned as what matters most in teaching and learning? Well, I have two points of view. And the first one is when I went into education, I was told that it was the most noble field. I have no reason to believe that it was anything other than that. I bought into it being the most noble field that one could actually learn and train and lead. And the reason I was told it was the most noble field was that teachers perpetuate democracy. Because without an informed citizenry, you have no democracy. So I felt very privileged and honored to be an educator because I was indeed part of the future of this great democracy and experiment called the United States of America. So in that, any bumps and scrapes and bruises along the way, I put them in the tally as this is par for democracy and the development of this great experiment called the United States of America. Yes, indeed, I was the child of civil rights. We were in the heat of it. I was born and raised in my early years in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was there in high school, two miles away, less than two miles away from my home where King was shot. So it was not only an impact on me, it was an impact on our neighborhood. We could physically see and hear the changes in the neighborhood at that time. So those things are, are still in my mind, but I also had a larger view that Again, everything that I was doing, I was participating in this big experiment called the United States of America and in this experiment called democracy. And with experiments, if you know anything about science, things go well some days and things don't go well some days, but right. it's always information. The other thing, I said there were two things. There's a backdrop that I bring to this whole notion and I know that's something that psychologists and psychiatrists want to know, well, what was it like in your childhood? Well, I had a fabulous childhood, and I will point out that our where we lived, where we prayed, and where we learned was all in a very small, knit, close community. And in that learning experience, I must say that my first teachers were nuns. This was a Catholic mission, if you will, and the base of the providers of the education was the mother house of the Sisters of the Blessed Virgin Mary out of Dubuque, Iowa. And they were dedicated at that time, their mission was to rescue, save, and educate. Indians and what they referred to as Negro, in Negro missions at the time. So again, that was all a part of this evolving experiment called the United States. But what a wonderful opportunity to 
have that type of education from those women. I appreciate that to this day. And I keep in contact with them to this day and, and thank them for the gift and the treasure they gave me. And because a lot of people will stop and say to me, even now, they'll say, I can't pick up your accent. And I'll say, it's a Southern Midwestern accent. My mother's from Chicago. My teachers were all from the Midwest. And so I have a, a Southern Midwestern accent and it, it sort of helps them a little bit. But the thing about these early educators and that close knit community that was indeed faith-based is that these women did not receive compensation a very revolutionary type of thinking and investment in what they believed in. So I, I, I developed that. I brought that I, with me into my career that there is something bigger than you. And it's that faith-based connection and then this commitment to the democracy, one man, one vote, one person, one vote, and the significance of this grand experiment for which I believe education is significant. If I could give just a little bit of a background here, I had the wonderful opportunity to be invited by Gwinnett Schools to participate in its Wallace Foundation efforts and initiative through the principal pipeline. And through that initiative, there were research-based strategies developed going forward with what was necessary for success as a principal or as a leader. And then looking back at what indeed the research was saying about the significant role of leadership, particularly in the, the school, uh, the lives of an individual uh, who was a learner, the little kids. So yes, we know that the impact of the teacher is significant. We've seen that research. We know that a learner flourishes or languishes. We, we get that. But then the Wallace Foundation funded research and examined existing research on what is the role of leaders and we've come to find out in looking at that leadership that yes, a leader, it's one leader or one principal, for example, in a school, and there may be 40 or 50 teachers or 20 in a very small school, or as many, I'm thinking of Mill Creek, and you may have hundreds when you approach 4,000, and, and I'm amazed at the, the breadth and depth of the influence that one person would have. Well, that's a city. Uh, that's a good-sized town if it's not a city. And so the, the investment then, you look very carefully at teachers. You look at the teacher shortage. We did a big study with this, with the P20 Collaborative, of which I was the strategic lead for four years, and that's an examination of all of the common issues in the metro Atlanta area that involve both the universities and the school, the shared responsibility of leadership from the metro Atlanta area. And we landed on the significant role of the leader, especially with respect to school climate. 
And with that, the leader makes or breaks the environment. I am very pleased with the research that was done with quality measures where they identified actual, the scientific part. But, but let me just put it in layman's terms. The leader must have the big picture. There must be the big picture. And even if you look at your big picture, there's got to be one bigger than that. So you take into consideration your learner. You take into consideration the teacher and everything the teacher has to go through. And you're doing this at the same time you're taking into consideration the entire school and the system. So it's kind of systems theory and everything is linked to everything else. And I think that a leader with the it factor is able to grasp the complexity of the universe of the learner the complexity that even when you think big, there's something even bigger that's impacted. So here you are as a leader, and that puts you in a pivotal role where you can do extreme good or extreme harm. And with that power, if you will, I'm careful the way I use the word power, but with that power, that's a new concept. If power is, has never been introduced to you as a child, never been introduced to you in your formal training, how do you manage power with knowing that there is a purpose to bring the best of life's experiences to those children, to those teachers, to the community, then you may be very apt to mismanage power and miss your it because your it is how do you leverage the power given to you to impact the greatest good for that community? All of these thoughts and beliefs were not shaped solely by research and your reading and participation, but by your experiences, including those where you served in different leadership roles and especially the earliest years of your experience as a learner with the sisters that you talked about earlier. Yes. So I want to back up now to your childhood and talk about some of your earliest memories before you became a teacher. Your childhood really is unique and it's going to be eye-opening to virtually everybody listening to your story. So tell us about the mission that you grew up on in Memphis. And when you say mission, what does that actually mean? Because somebody says you grew up on a mission. What does that mean? And there are so many other questions that this mention generates, like, why were you there? What was life like? And I know you're going to mention poverty. I think you mentioned a $2 tuition from one of your earliest memories because you just talked about compensation a minute ago for the, the sisters. Integration and segregation, and of course, the sisters, which we've mentioned multiple times. So share anything and everything you'd like us to know about that experience. Well, thank you. This was in the this experience, I was born in 53. So that's the heart of the quote unquote civil rights struggle. And we were in a segregated community at the time. We um, had the fortune of having a neighborhood mission. And that was to, you know, proselytize and to raise the standard of living for those in the community. Now, interestingly enough, Interestingly enough, the procurement of the nuns 
at this uh, mission. The mission was called St. Augustine. And the mission was pushed by the elite or the era, the black aristocracy of the city, the doctors, the lawyers, that, that sort of thing. So here we have a mission that's designed to pull everyone up out of the ashes and to bring them to Christ and to proselytize. And these were very capable people. But there was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Hose, and he had in his background heard and experienced in New Orleans about the Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So he actually petitioned to have, with others, to have a mission placed in Memphis, Tennessee. So we have two contrasting notions here. We have one of the aristocracy wanting to protect in a private school setting. Then on the other hand, we have these, the benevolent uh, nuns of the North coming down to rescue. And it made for a wonderful combination. It really did. So my first understanding of civil rights and integration and segregation was that the common enemy we all had was evil. The common en enemy in our family was never divided in, by race. In fact, in this entire mission experience where all of the basic structural expenses were taken care of, now that I look back, by the archdiocese, at that time it was just the diocese, but nevertheless, mission in that instance meant there was a financial dependency to cover the expenses for books and furnishings. And we, we went to a, a very nice school. We went to mass every morning. We were fully educated. The rooms, there were a lot of people in the rooms. I do remember the classrooms being extremely large. And that was the only criticism that my the public schools would leverage against us. My goodness, over at St. Augustine, they have really, really large classes. But we were taught self-discipline and a lot of things that we were taught, I am to this day appreciative of what we were provided. But I am happy because when I went into each of my tough situations, as a teacher, and indeed at Georgia State as a second wave integration in the 70s, I never saw it in terms of black and white. And I know that sounds so naive and it sounds so cliche-ish, but I was always looking for the good that was colorless and I was looking for the evil that was colorless. I knew that there was a good out there to pursue. And I knew that there was an evil out there to avoid and mitigate. You make me think of something I jotted down two years ago or three years ago. And you said that evil is the desire to exert unjust control over others. And that you disagree with the currently quite prevalent view that people who say they don't see color cannot be culturally sensitive or wise. 
I believe you even mentioned, I didn't capture this in writing, but it seems like you sort of looked around the world in your mind's eye for a moment and said, here's, here's an example of why I know that it's really not about skin tone or skin color, these issues of segregation or divisiveness. Can you expand on that a little bit? And, and Well, yes, growing meant? up. Yes, absolutely. Growing up, one of the concerns, one of the places we watched, I know we watched the Middle East and the news quite a bit, but at that time we were looking at Ireland and we were looking at the struggle that the Catholics and Protestants were going through. And I knew this was not a function of skin color, but of one group exerting itself at the expense of another. So yes, my views are not popular in many settings when I say that's not my filter. Skin tone is not my filter. I, I may get around to it if I need to, but skin tone is not my filter. And again, that is not a popular view. That is one that is criticized. You can't be culturally sensitive if you don't take into consideration. And I hope I take into consideration every human being but my first filter is something very different. And that is, what are you here to, to do? Are you here to contribute or are you here to take away? If you're here to contribute, I'm going to align my resources. If you're here to take away, I'm going to try to do my best to set the example because that's, you know, I can't be intrusive. I'm going to set the best example I can of how this life, the way I live, is better than taking away. And so that goes with little bitty kids, medium-sized kids, college students. It goes across racial lines. It goes across ethnic lines. It's my, my truth that has worked for me. And I think we miss a lot when we just simply reduce everything to to skin color. It's, it's much bigger than that. You mentioned this Dr. Hose, who had this idea to embed the mission there for a slightly different reason than some of the other leaders in the community. Was everybody in the community of a certain socioeconomic status or rank or place a candidate for enrollment or how is it that you were there? It was right in the middle of a housing project. Because of segregation, everything was right in the middle of everything. So next door to the school was a college, Lemoyne College. It's now Lemoyne Owen. And across the street was a housing project, which was a high density housing for those who were in, in dire poverty. Now, yes, those students were invited. There were tuition waivers. So I think the will and the desire was the filter. If you wanted to become Catholic, there was quite a bit of proselytizing if you wanted to partake, because there was a strictness there, it wasn't everyone's cup of tea. There was a discipline, there were uniforms, and if you self-selected, I believe that they would make every effort to accommodate you for
for some adjusted tuition fee. But by no means did it escape me. It was not missed on me that this was definitely a bifurcated community. There were, even in this community of all people of mostly color, we had a little mixing going on there, but there were definitely those who drove up in big cars and those who walked to school. Uh, because it was walking distance, we did both. We drove up in cars and we also walked. It was so close. But I think our father would go with us just to do what good fathers do, and that's to make sure that they stay alert and aware of their children's learning environments. So I think fathers and mothers were paying attention to a lot of things at that time, and I think my father did as well. Um, but yes, it was very clear that there was a mixing. It was generally people of color, overwhelmingly people of color, but there were some, there were some class differences that were very clear to me at the time. And you also seem to be quite aware of things like that at an early age. I remember you talking about your high school experience. It was Sacred Heart School for Girls. Yes. And you told me that you started noticing very clearly during the high school years about a different kind of segregation, which I think is a sort of the next level of your understanding that you're referring to from what you saw at the mission. Can you talk about that high school experience a little bit? Absolutely. So after the eighth grade at St. Augustine, we, we switched to another facility, which was St. Thomas. It's since then be re, been renamed to St. Augustine. But I went to Sacred Heart for Girls. It was a new thing to do because there was a high school of color that my brothers went to, his father Bertrand High School. My brothers who were older, 9, 10, and 11 years old, 9, 10, and 13 years older than me, they all went to Father Bertram. At this time, there was a lot of talk of integration, and there were some schools opening up. And there was a school, Sacred Heart for Girls. I applied, and I was able to, to get in, and I was just so delighted with that experience and what I learned. And I was happy that I was able to integrate and be, and here's a strong word, an ambassador for my race. I felt very good about that. And I learned an interesting brand of Catholicism that was Italian and that was a wonderful experience, learning all the different interpretations of Christianity. When I went to the school, I wasn't tracked very high. I wasn't in the lowest tracking, but I really had to prove myself, and I really had to work very hard, and I had to make all A's in order to be tracked with the highest college bound. I was with the college bound, but I wasn't with the highest college bound. And that was when I learned about competition. And from that point on, anything segregated was not about skin color again. It was about capacity and how smart you were. And that was a totally different. And I'm in an all-female environment as well. Oh, my goodness. 
I really learned that there were so many more levels to this. And if you were just to simply get bogged down with one or two little things, you would miss the big picture. These women were progressive. They were, um, and they were nuns as well, but they had not, they weren't the mission kind of nuns. They were very progressive. They wanted their females in the school to be, this is a Southern term, finished. So this was a finishing school where when you left, you knew what to do, you knew how to do it. You were very capable. And in the last few years, we consolidated with the all boys school and with the school of color. So Bishop Derrick at the time, his vision was that I'm gonna do a meltdown of all these silos of the uh, Catholic schools in Memphis. And we're just gonna put everything together. It was a very bold move. And so my last year there, I knew I had to grab a hold of something. I said, mm, this, is quite a, this is quite a shift here, quite a change. I became editor of the school paper because I said, we need to make sure everyone has a voice. And that was my method. I shared that with Robert Stewart. He was the, from the boys' school. So we had to have co-editors because we both had our own view of how things. But in the school's wisdom, they said, what we'll do is we'll just have co-editors. And that was what I really thought my calling was going to be in the journalism area. But uh, out of obedience, my mother said, I want you to go into education. So my total decision is kind of like when they talk about arranged marriages, this was an arranged career. Well, you talked about a shift because of the blending of the previous silos and the bishop's bold move to make a change like that. And you made reference earlier to a shift that happened nationally, perhaps internationally, a ripple for sure, but a national shift when Dr. King was assassinated. And you, you lived in the same neighborhood, as you mentioned, yes. just, just miles from that site. What are your memories about that day? I, the, my most distinct memory is, of course, just an overwhelming sadness. And the secondary thought, it may surprise you, was one of embarrassment. Because my mother had friends in Dallas when Kennedy was shot, we all thought, oh my goodness, how embarrassed they would be for the city. So yes, it was a sadness, but we, I was embarrassed that it was Memphis. And that's a, that's a strange response, but first sadness, then embarrassment, and then a weird awe because the anger of the community began to rise and things were then set on fire. So the, the haze as the sun was setting was orange. I, I shall never forget the sky being orange from the fires in the neighborhood. And so that's the impression that I have of that particular day, the phone call that uh, we received. Now, interestingly, it didn't come from the news. We, I received it. We, our home received an actual phone call. So that kind of lets you know 
where we are in communications and how we've changed. We would have gotten our news off of the television, but at that time, the television was just only turned on for special occasions. And um, it, it was not something that stayed on all the time. News, computers, we didn't have those on. So we received a phone call from my brother's girlfriend, actually, and she was crying and she said King had been shot. So again, that, that sequence of sadness and embarrassment and then the, the, the quiet awe of looking at the sunset and the orange cast to the sky. Those are my, my memories. Out of that memory, out of that tragedy, what do you think are the most important lessons that emerge that should be emphasized and taught, especially in schools? So if we open the Dr. Felicia Mayfield Education Center, what life lessons would you focus on to minimize the likelihood that you know, such a hateful act would be repeated? I have to go back to the basics. I have to go back to the basics. And the basics, democracy in this experiment called the United States, where it's one person, one vote. And I'm not naive. I understand that the, those who crafted the original documents had something entirely different in mind. I'm not naive. My mother is turning 99, and she points out that the year she was born was the year that women were able to vote and own property. So I'm not in a place where I am just thinking that democracy occurs without struggle. I'm not, I'm not naive. I understand that perfectly. I, I get that. And I think we just push forward with learning the lessons of, and here's the key, there is a significant price that is paid when one's advancement is at the expense of the other. And that's just a place of honesty where we all have to be. How much is the advancement of one person going to be expensive to uh, toward another person. And that is why we, it, we call it a democracy. So to mitigate that, to mitigate that disparity, here we come with the nobility of the field of education. We need to get back to that original idea that teachers, teachers, educators, are the individuals who make this experiment work. And informed citizenry is what makes democracy work. When you don't have information, you're just really going to falter because you'll default to your emotions. And when your emotions override what is good for the big picture, then that's when we get into a selfishness and a haves and a have nots. And that's indeed what gives birth to civil wars all over the world. We, we see it every day. We just click the news and one group says, hey, we're tired of being taken advantage of. The other side says, hey, but we're not giving up the power we have. So 
I believe educators are in the middle to mitigate that struggle. Now that's a, that's a tall order, but that's where the leap to leadership comes in, where the leader must be the one who sees the big picture and sees how to mitigate and sees the commonalities and the mutual benefits of what we call democracy where one person gets one vote and we decide and we respect the vote that is cast. It sounds revolutionary, but it's exactly what we, what we designed this country to do. Do you see a risk in forgetting or missing something as people get further and further from those pivotal events? I do see a risk. I, I do see a risk, and I know that there's always been this notion of forgetting. That's, that's the whole story behind Deuteronomy. Don't forget. And I, I have to revert to my faith-based context because forgetting is a part of the moving forward and having to relearn painful lessons. You see this with every child you have, even your grandchildren. They're going to still try to put their hand near the stove when it, it's still hot. And they have to learn that themselves. And it hurts us because I'm a grandmother. It, and you go, my goodness, you know, every generation has to learn some part of it. But the good thing is that we have such amazing visuals now. It's not like we didn't have photography. Uh, at one point, we didn't have the rich photography. Everybody has a camera now. Everybody documents everything. And yes, we know that visual images can be manipulated. It changed. We understand all of that. But I am so appreciative that I have faith that we will continue to do well and learn because we have so many more learning opportunities than we've ever had before. We have so much more to take in and this is where my hope is and, and this is why I am so positive is that we're learning both sides of stories. It, we're, we're learning them from the perception of both perpetrators and victims. And if you listen carefully, the perpetrator is even the victim. And so it's, it's so interesting that everyone is sharing their story now. So I feel like we're actually richer in understanding the human condition. I think we're richer than we ever have been. Our research is there. We have the stories. Everyone has a voice. I don't know anyone who doesn't have a voice now. Everybody has a, has a voice, even around the world when people emerge from the dark corners of oppression and slavery. So do we have to fear forgetting the risk of forgetting? Yes. However, we understand the human condition and what oppression produces and what people coming from that particular environment, what they have to say. And we are very clear about what revolution looks like. So we understand if, if an oppressor presses too hard and too harshly, 
that it will probably result in some kind of pushback. Everybody understands that now. So I think because of the world stage, I think the human condition is understood clearly. So the risk of forgetting, yes, is there, but the exposure of human condition with social media is so graphic now. We can see executions on our computer screens. We can see revolutions. We can, we can look at wars. So we're learning. We're just learning on a broader, on a broader screen. I'm going to have to borrow from another field, and that would be agriculture, where you harvest, you harvest the best. I believe in, in the school that I would have, I would harvest the best of the gifts. And I do believe that we all have certain gifts, but that we don't feel as though we can share them. And so that's one of the things that I believe, if I were to have my own school, that I would be able to harvest the very best. Now, when we look at school safety and we look at female empowerment, some of these acting out behaviors that we see are because individuals do not feel as though their talents have been harvested. They do not feel as though they have been asked, what do they believe? and they do not believe that what they believe matters. And that kind of empowerment and plain old fashioned respect comes from not lip service, but actually the act of taking the best of what people have to offer and putting it to use. I think that that is female empowerment. I think it's people empowerment. You, I wanna be very careful because I don't want to do with the female empowerment thing the same thing that has been done with other groups that get empowerment. You cannot abuse or exploit or you cannot use your power in a way that causes someone else to be deficient. That just is renaming and recycling the same old problem of one human being desiring to dominate another human being. It just is a waste of time. And I think the, the politically correct way to say it is it's counterproductive. Now, with that said, do we have to go through cycles? And yes, because we have had a history of women's needs not being met do we need to go through a cycle till we all to a place of awareness? Yes. And that's when I put them in the same category as the whole issue of school safety and all of that. Now, are we listening to, and this is a hard thing, are we listening and we studying the perpetrators? Are we paying attention to their needs? And I'm hearing some common themes. I think they came out with Columbine, isolation, not feeling like they fit in, this political disenfranchisement of feeling like an outsider, an outcast. I hear mental health issues, but I also hear some social responsibility issues in there as well. 
And because all of my problems, and this is a strong statement that I'm going to make, all of my problems are solved inside of a faith-based context. I have to be patient with those who don't have that construct. And I have to say, well, now, how can I help to build an infrastructure that is analogous or parallel to my faith-based construct? That's my challenge right now, because I have a responsibility to, you know, share what works, if you will. But then I don't want to burden a, even a student, I'm in higher ed now, I don't want to burden them with trying to be a recruiter for my belief system. I want to take them where they are and to let them do some self-exploration and clarify you know, what it is that they're seeking and what are the results of what you're seeking. And I always say to them, now this is my belief system, but I'm not trying to impose my belief system on you. But I do believe it's important that I set an example and that I do share. Sure, because that provides someone with another perspective and to think about things in a way that they might not have done before. What should or could a teacher or an administrator do right now, regardless of the, the context that they operate in in their respective school or district, what can they do right now to make a difference for those that they serve, whether that's students or colleagues or even families or communities, but primarily students or colleagues, what can they do now? Right now, it, this is a wonderful time because we have so many examples of quality leadership. We're able to zero in on those who are doing a really great job. I was just looking at the principal of the, the national principal of the year is coming out of Gwinnett County. And these are fabulous examples of individuals. So right now, we are so rich in being able to tap into the traits, characteristics, practices, rituals, and routines of successful leaders. It is not guesswork. We know exactly what goes into being successful. And it's back to that it factor of having a large view of how your actions, the individual as leader, impacts the larger community. Now, I'm going to, this is a caveat, and I've got to use an example that comes from sports. And that's when a referee makes, or an umpire makes a really bad call. And the coaches, if they're respectful, the referee or the umpire will give it back to them when they need it, that call. So I learned that in sports that you don't get upset if you get upset, you won't get the call back. If you stay calm, the referee or the umpire will give you the call back, especially if they realize they have made a bad call. Now, a leader will not make a perfect call every time. And they have to be trusted to the point with so many experiences of trust, and that's how you build trust, one experience after the other with your school community, and indeed the community at large, 
one decision after the other where people feel as though it wasn't taken from me or if I had to give something up, there was a reason and the principal or the leader took the time to explain why that was necessary. Now, once that trust is built, even if the principal has to make a tough call that is unpopular, the community has enough faith and trust in the individual that he or she, you know, they know that they're gonna get it back just like a, a bad call with an umpire or a referee. They're gonna get it back. We'll, we'll, we'll make you whole, but I need for you to work with me through this particularly difficult situation right now. And then I'll circle back around and I'll do something for you where you, you'll feel more comfortable. And I'm gonna point to those quality measures, which were the research-based out of EDC and the Wallace Foundation, very powerful research work. If you want the cold science behind it and the behaviors specifically that lead to success for leaders. So I have those two things, those good examples and the, the cold research. But right now, if a principal or a leader does not understand systems theories and how one decision will impact down the line, if you can't see that, if you don't have that vision, and I know we talk about vision all the time as having a projection of a desirable future, but vision to me also covers being able to see right now where you are and what is in the best interest of the people you're serving. Notice I didn't say lead that time, I said serve, because if you don't have that undergirding, if you will, of service, then I'm not sure it doesn't come across to the people you're working with that you're in it for some reason other than to make life better for them. I think it just comes across very quickly if it's leadership in a selfish way, which looks more like management, or leadership in service, which looks more like, well, what are we gonna do to make this better for all of us? Fairly recently, you said, once you know better, you are charged with the responsibility of leading. Once you know better, you are charged with the responsibility of leading. Is there anything you would like to expand on regarding that statement? The only thing I would say is that when you step out to lead, make sure, well, before you step out to lead, make sure you're healed. I see a lot of people who look for leadership to heal them in the places where they're broken. And we need actually the opposite. We need for our leaders to come into the positions having been healed, reconciled, uh, having no enemies, having no internal conflict, not being double mind. I would say that that personal care, if that is not intact, it shows on your face. It shows in your countenance and it shows in your productivity. 
And it is a shame for you to have to work out your inadequacies on a stage of social media because everyone can see your inadequacy. So it's good to just get a, a trusted friend or a great psychologist or a great spiritual counselor and say, listen, I'm having a hard time forgiving X or I have uh, had some injury in my childhood that I need to work through. I have some issues as an adult that I never did come to a place of peace. Once you step into the role of leadership, you need to be in a place where you can divest of self and invest in the people you serve. If you have too much unforgiveness, if you have too much heartache, if you have not been reconciled, if you have any enemies, if you have pieces of yourself you're struggling with, that is not the time. Leaders need to be totally in a place of maturity and wholeness and wellness. And we just really need our best leaders to have forgiven so that that does not, and it will rear its head in your service to others, that if you have any, if you have any unforgiveness, if you have anger, if you have anything that has not been totally put to bed and at peace, then Let's get that done now, along with all the certifications and all of the, and we, that's one of the things we try to work on at Clark Atlanta University. If we see a disposition in an individual and they're in leadership or even in our teacher preparation, we said, let's talk. Let's talk about what's going on here. And if it rises to the level of professional care, then we've been known to, you know, go with someone to get them help in that area. But to lead means that you're giving your best self. And we really need to be healthy physically, emotionally, and I believe spiritually in a place to give our very best and to leverage, leverage our energies in a way that makes the experience better and the environment better for the people we serve. One other thing that you said, you just mentioned Clark Atlanta again, was yes. about Clark Atlanta. And you said that in addition to really nurturing learners and making the first generation college attendees feel at home, et cetera, was that Clark Atlanta serves and produces guardians of social justice. What did you mean by that? And how do you actually accomplish that? How does that roll into you know, a place of importance when these people move on to their respective roles when they leave you? What it looks like, that is actually in our, for the School of Education, our conceptual framework, social justice. And, and what it looks like is advocacy for those who need it. Now that could be in special ed fighting for adaptive materials for your student. That could look like advocacy is when you're in a place where you can offer to an individual a piece of yourself or your expertise or any of your quote unquote power 
to help an individual reach their potential. Because we have modeled it, and I, in all honesty, I have the backdrop of the mission. I, I, I never lost that. I still have that backdrop. And even though I don't share that with the other people, my coworkers, they have had some experience where they saw someone do this. They know what that means to give selflessly and to model the behavior that will lead to this kind of kindness being perpetuated. And so we hope that when we set the example for our students, that they in turn will be able to provide advocacy for those they serve in the future and give voice to the voiceless. Who was your favorite teacher? I think the person most recently who has influenced me the most is the dearly departed Moses Norman, who was our dean. And I had known him for so long. I really treasure his example of being a positive influence. And he would insert himself into situations that would seem like they would be the most contentious, the most negative, and he would just turn on the sunshine. He would turn the light on in some sort of way. I didn't agree with everything that he did or everything that he said, but he had a unique gift in being able to insert himself into a dark place and turning the light on. And that's what I grabbed from the late, great Dr. Moses Norman. And my mother, mother always said, you know, when you come to admire a person or in a situation and there's anything that you don't like, she said, you just do like watermelon. You just eat it and you spit out the seeds. So everything that I love about him, I, I really want to grab. And, and as I said, there were some things, he was a man of his era. And he definitely had some shortcomings in some particular areas. But overall, the lesson that I learned from him, and I had known him since I was a teenager, was that you can insert yourself into a dark place. And no matter how dark, and this is a phrase he would use, or, or how fragile the institution is, you can insert yourself into it and you can be a positive influence. And I just remember that, and it's a part of who I am and, and what I do. Is there anything that I should have asked you or that you want to share that we need to make sure we capture today? Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate the conversation, and I appreciate the boldness of going inside of the consciousness of individuals who have been around for some time. 45 years is nothing to sneeze at. And there've been ups and there've been downs and I've seen so much. And I want what I have experienced to matter for someone else. I want for someone to be able to glean. And I've listened to your other presenters 
And the nuggets, the, the nuggets that you grab are just so enriching. So I don't know what I have said or what in my life can contribute to someone else, but I appreciate you providing a platform that would accommodate a breadth and depth of contributors to this field we call education and to just examine what does it mean to lead? What does it mean to stand out? Because it does take courage. And leadership is not something that is a popularity contest. In fact, if everybody's going along with you, watch out, something may not be right here because popularity does not equal leadership. And if in the leadership one has to sacrifice something, then so be it. If we advance to another place, then it's good for all. I'm a master gardener, and it amazes me how even when we turn over the dirt for a new crop in the, so we have a little garden in the back, and I even do this with the flowers, how many benefits I'm getting from the last harvest that was left. So I've got the seeds, the root system. I have so much there that creates growth for the next crop. So that's, that's what I'm appreciative of. I thank you for this opportunity to share and, and appreciate you so very much. I appreciate the sentiments. And as you already know, I respect you very much and how you conduct business. You, to me, are the quintessential professional. You said 45 years. So what's the next 45 hold? What's next for you professionally or personally or projects or plans or ideas? Share whatever you'd like or not. You know, everybody's into personal branding. And I've done a couple of speeches on personal branding. My personal brand comes from Micah 6.8, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. I am going to continue to do justly. I'm going to continue to love mercy, and I'm going to continue to walk humbly. I would encourage everyone to get something that has meaning to you and a direction. And that way, the vicissitudes of life won't disrupt what it is you believe in. So. As I walk forward, I am believing that, I don't know about retirement, that seems to just keep moving away from me. There always Good. seems to be a project. There always <laughs> seems to be a project. And I'm looking at all these new teachers and I'm going, oh my goodness, there's so much to learn and so much to teach. So I'll try to capture some things in writing, of course, so that I can pass them on in that way. And instead of the daily demands, hopefully I can get to a place where I can continue to share, but it won't be the physical demand of, of the day-to-day. -day. But right now, it's day-to-day, -day and I'm in there working with teacher education and leader ed whenever I can. And Clark Atlanta also has a counselor education department that is phenomenal with a mental health component in it. So I have to put a plug in for my university and the great job that the School of Education is doing under the leadership of our Dean, Dr. Fidel Turner, and Associate Dean, Barbara Hill, who in themselves, they are accomplished educators. So 
right now the work is is there and I'm just wanting to be a productive contributor for as long as I, I possibly can. Well, I'll make sure to put a link to Clark Atlanta's website in the show notes. And just want to thank you, Felicia, for giving us a glimpse into your work and your world and for providing us with some very thought provoking material about relationships and learning and leading and, and what matters most in all those areas of life. Greatly appreciate that. And I want you to just have a great day. Thank you. You do as well. Thanks for listening today. Find the Lead, Learn, Change podcast on your search engine, iTunes, or other listening app. Leave a rating, write a review, subscribe, and share with others. In the meantime, go lead, go learn, go make a change, go 